Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Walk-Ins Welcome Podcast. I'm Michael Russell. And I'm Gary Okazaki, Gary the Foodie. Hello, everybody. Hey, guys. So we're here today to talk about a lot of stuff. We've got a fun show. Uh, we're going to talk about wrapping up uh, the Michelin Star Guide for New York. We're going to make some predictions about San Francisco. Uh, and we're also going to touch on some of the cooking shows we've been watching, Some of the, uh, mostly on Netflix these days. Um, before that, I wanted to talk about noodles. So there's about 10 hand-pulled noodle places in Portland. I've been to eight of them so far. They are all different places. Some are Korean restaurants, some are Chinese restaurants. And I've been learning a lot about hand-pulled noodles. Uh, have you tried any hand-pulled noodles lately? Well, I, I, I went to a place that you actually IG'd about, Instagrammed about, and that's um, the place in Hollywood District in Portland, Oregon. And it's called the Bogogi by Dukabi. It's a very <laughs> odd sort of name. But it was really, it was really delicious. I mean, I was surprised because I walked by it literally every day. And when they first opened... I just I looked like just like a hole in the wall crappy little place and I, I didn't know. But I, I think that's accurate. I mean they and they did not have the hand pulled noodles for the first two years they were there. So it's an it's a new addition. Um, I don't want to get too into the nitty gritty. I, I think the big picture thing is um, people started making noodles in Western China about a thousand years ago, and this style developed where they take these lumps of dough. And it makes the dough extremely pliable. It's like a high gluten dough, I guess. They and they take it. They take a little lump and they just pull it and pull it and pull it and pull it and pull it until it becomes one incredibly long strand that they have wrapped around their forearms. And it becomes this like a like a cat's cradle if you've ever played that game, but like with six foot long strands of rope. And I don't know why Portland has so many places that specialize in this, but. For some reason, Portland, which is not a very big city and does not have is not very well known for its Chinese food, has like ten to twelve places that do this kind of, you know, popular but you know high, it takes a lot of training to do this noodle style. So it's it's a curious thing. I'm trying to find out more. Um, so is it, it sounds very time consuming to make a single dish of noodles, or is it? Once uh, you pull it and pull it and pull it, and then you have the cat's the, the cradle, and you cut it. I'm assuming you cut it right in half. And then that's they, how they, yeah they chop the end and then it becomes oh. like many it becomes like let's say twenty or thirty long strands at that point and like very long strands each one's probably six to eight feet long and they throw that directly into the water water into the boiling water and that cooks really really fast so oh. that batch might provide enough noodles for four bowls so okay. they can move pretty quickly but the the whole process of making the noodle is probably five minutes start to finish you know we the last time we talked about noodles we were talking about pasta places in los angeles and i think you were hoping to give us an update on your favorite places to eat pasta yeah i was in los angeles this past week and i ate at a couple of um italian restaurants and ate pasta and was very impressed and uh I actually have a, a top five, the top five places in Los Angeles that I really like pasta. And it's not an all-encompassing list. I, there are many, uh, many places I'd still need to go to. But at number five is Ovacine Brera, which I went to this past week. And that's Angelo Oriana. That, at number four, another place I went this week. 
John and Vinny from John Shook and Vinny Totolo. They're very well known, and John and Vinny's is a is a pretty much straightforward Italian red sauce restaurant, and it's just really kind of fun place to hang out and eat some straightforward Italian food. And number three, Osteria Mozza from Nancy Silverton. She's been around the Los Angeles scene many decades, and she's the one of the most iconic figures in the culinary scenes, not just in Los Angeles, in America. She was actually the first recipient of a James Beard Award Outstanding Pastry Chef some 30 years ago and a couple years ago she was also she also won the outstanding chef award and of course not surprisingly that's never happened before wow that's never happened before nope and number two rosa blue from steve samson it's great what's it like um it's like a convert it almost feels like a converted uh, warehouse but it's in a very sketchy sort of part of town there isn't much around there. You kind of have to walk through. Depending on how you get there, you have, I walk through Skid Row Ooh. to get there. I know, right? Yeah. In the day, LA I, Skid Row is a is it lives up to its name. It does. It's, it's it's it's. I was told don't go don't go through there even during the day. I probably would have told you that too. Yeah, yeah. but I well, was kind of curious. But um, yeah, Ro- Rose Blue is just a very high end, very big, very large restaurant. Probably over 100, 120 seats, but they do pasta really, really well, given how, which is pretty impressive given how big the restaurant is. And number one, not surprisingly, this was written about a lot a few years ago, is Felix from Evan Funke. You went, I went Michael. to Felix. It was amazing. I still remember the focaccia, which was like a, like a savory rosemary donut. Yeah, I was a little bummed that they weren't making the noodles in the, you know, they have this like noodle place. cage. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Noodle cage? Yeah. It's like a glass window and it's very beautiful tiled and they're supposed to be making noodles in there and they just weren't when I was there, which is fine. I mean, they probably do it during the day, but what's the point of having the windows if there's not someone in there doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, Noodle Man in uh, Happy Valley where I was today, one of the handful noodle places, uh, has a window and they are doing all the handful noodling behind the glass just like... You would see at Din Tai Fung for dumplings. And I think it's smart. You know, you get little kids pressing their nose up to the glass and people are filming it for Instagram. So, well, that's a heck of a list. I think we need like a top five drop, you know? Okay. Yeah. And we'll do this. Top five. I love, I love lists. (laughs) I love lists. So maybe we'll do more lists, (laughs) even more lists. Speaking of lists, uh, we had the Michelin Guide to New York came out. So the big news as I saw it, from maybe it's just the local connection, but the Breslin restaurant in the Ace Hotel. So, you know, our, uh, uh, a local chef named Peter Cho, who runs a Korean restaurant here called Hanok, used to run the Breslin for Chef April Bloomfield. Uh, I guess he was chef de cuisine there, yeah, right? Yes. So there's a lot of weird local connections for us. They lost their Michelin star. And the upshot of that is that April Bloomfield who once ran two one Michelin starred kitchens in the Breslin and uh, the Spotted Pig now has none because she sold her interest in the Spotted Pig to her partner, uh, Ken Friedman, who has been accused of um, all sorts of sexual uh, harassment, um, even beyond that at the Spotted Pig. I don't think there's any real connection between the Me Too movement and April losing a star at the Breslin. I think it's more of an issue of, and I saw, I read the article, it was more of an issue of consist- consistency of the food because Mario Batelli, as far as I know, and I, and I believe he has not lost any Michelin stars yet. And- well, there was, Ryan Sutton wrote a piece for Eater New York where he kind of detailed 
that there seems to be, it seems to have been a gender imbalance this year that, you know, there's a very nice omakase, new omakase place run by a woman that did not receive a star, but five other Japanese restaurants did. You have April Bloomfield, who's just guilty by association or maybe by, uh, by neglecting the situation at the Spotted Pig, loses a star. Mario Batali doesn't. Now, I know Michelin says that they only care about what's on the plate, but it, it doesn't, does it seem to you that like they're following the trends at all? It does to me. No, no, I, I don't. I really do believe all they care about is what's on the plate. They, they, I mean, they don't make judgment calls like maybe like the Beard Foundation did when they set a, sent out a statement saying they, they were going to use um, a variable of, one of the variables will be whether the person or persons have, has been accused of sexual misconduct and that they would use that as a criteria for making selections as to the semifinalists. Someone like a John Besh was not named a semifinalist. Someone like Batali was not named a semifinalist. I mean, Ken Freeman won Outstanding Restaurateur like two years ago, two or three years ago, I remember. And I'm sure they, he would not have won if those allegations come out had come out um, like back then. And, uh, the upshot for me was it was nice to see Automix getting a star, which, uh, which I predicted... You on, thought they might get two. I thought they might get two because I think they deserve two. Maybe think, next year. I think maybe eventually they will get two. Um, I was at in Paris. I was I went to Okuda, uh, Sushi Okuda. Uh, they ha- he has a sushi place and o- a kaiseki place. And Okuda in New York City, Toro Toru has a place in New York City that got a Michelin star, which was nice to see. Hmm. Uh, so it was it was yeah. That was one of the five new yes. Japanese places. Nakazawa deserves. A Michelin star. They should have gotten. They ignored star. it before. Yeah, they ignored it. I mean, and that's one of the like. There are only like four or five four star New York Times restaurants right now. Um, and um, Nakazawa has had four stars for a few years now, and it's one of the best sushi experiences I've had, not only in the United States but in the world. So, in addition to Nakazawa and Okuda, you had Kosaka, Noda, and Sushi Naz earning a single star. Those are newer Japanese places. Right, and you know, I've said before, I don't quite. I mean, Michelin when they deal with uh, cuisines outside of French, the French cuisine, they get it's hard for them, and I, I, I don't envy them having to give out stars to like Japanese restaurants or Chinese restaurants or uh, Scandinavian restaurants. And I, I mean, like I said, I've said before on this podcast, I don't think any, I don't think any. Restaurant, any sushi restaurant deserves more than two two Michelin stars. I don't think any tempura restaurant deserves more than one star. And that's just my bias as far as just it seems pretty simple. Like I could do a pretty good job. My grandma did great sushi and great tempura. And she was she was hmm. just a home cook. Yeah, I'm sure she would have had three stars if you were <laughs> rating her. For, so to go to go just to read a little bit more off Sutton's sort of breakdown in uh, for Eater New York. You know, he points out that Cosme, which is run by a woman, Daniela Soto Inés, um, that they still don't have a star. And that's remarkable to me, having eaten at Cosme and also having eaten Daniela's food at a, at a dinner, a collaboration dinner with Enrique Olvera, Daniela, and uh, two chefs from Thailand, including David Thompson. That was like, I've talked about this with you privately, that was one of the greatest meals that I've ever had, especially in Portland. And she seems to be incredibly talented. 
again, they cited consistency, but again, we have a restaurant run by a woman that is not being recognized for that star. Um, and it's again, just curious. And, it's, and again, it's, it's, and I, I've been there, but only once. I'm going to go again like next week. I'm supposed to go next week, so we'll see. But um, And I love Atla. It's, it doesn't deserve Michelin star. It's very casual. And it's a breakfast lunch place, but it, owned by Enrique Alvera. Uh, it, it's 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 again it's it's so far out of the norm of what Michelin normally tries to give stars to. Again, do they truly understand, you know, Mexican 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 food? I mean, if if they ever go to Mexico City, it'll be fun and interesting to see who which places they give the stars to. And I don't know. I don't. I I don't think there is a three Michelin star restaurant in Mexico City. Uh, Puyo, Quintanilla. And Suit 777 are all Bico closed, unfortunately. But those, the, t- the other three are Michelin-level restaurants, obviously. Are they any, are any of the three of them three? No. And two, two of them, Quinto Neal and uh, Puyo, are amongst the best restaurants on the San Pellegrino list. They're both in the top 15, I believe. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah, it goes back to the disparity between those two lists. Yeah, very different lists. They're looking for different things. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, you could see a situation where if Michelin did go to Mexico City, it could drive the restaurants to change their style and change their approach to the format of the of a tasting menu in a way that might be more appealing to those inspectors. And the Talier Dijon Robochon will probably end up in Mexico City then. Because he seems to... <laughs> again, I was a little bit surprised that he got two Michelin... Oh, not... He, he's, Isn't he dead? He's passed away. <laughs> but I'm surprised Atelier de Joao Robichon got two Michelin stars. That was a shocker. Yeah. So that, that was new this year also. And um, other two stars include uh, Ichimura at Uchu, uh, Gabriel Kreuther. Is that how you say it? Yeah. He, he, he was the original chef at The Modern. Right, and then the basement at Tetsu, which closed, which closed, <laughs> and had, had terrible reviews. So yeah, and uh, I, I love. Oh, I went to Ichimura a brushstroke. Uh, brushstroke closed, and chef had to find another location, and it's Ichimura Uchu now. Uh, and I, I loved Ichimura brushstroke brush again. One of the finest sushi experiences I've ever had. So, and of course, this is very expensive, but again, it was it was fantastic. Um, just dipping back into the one stars really quickly, uh, Jeju noodle bar, which is a Korean ramyun restaurant, got a star. Was that surprising for you? I don't know much about it. I was surprised only because everyone else seems surprised. Okay. I mean, I mean, Michelin has given stars to Singapore hawker stalls. So you can get like a $5 or $3, one Michelin star meal, two ramen restaurants, two, two ramen places in Tokyo have Michelin stars, maybe three, but I think two. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're willing to extend what they think is one Michelin star food. And they ignore places. Like, I went to Paris a few weeks ago. Le Clarence and uh, Kai are two restaurants that I think are deserving of three Michelin stars. But because, you know, they may be easy on, I may think they're easy on Japanese restaurants or other types of restaurants, but they're very hard on on on, on restaurants to do French French food because they know they know how to rate those restaurants and they're and like they both i thought are very deserving of two michelin stars they're they're better than some three michelin star restaurants that i've been to around the world so but we'll see i mean the, the, uh, i think paris will release in february 
of next year. And you had two of places I've read about, uh, you know, strong reviews, Frenchette and La Mercerie. Both of them did not receive stars. Uh, Le Cuckoo did, though. Yeah. And that I, that's the place everyone raves about. So Daniel Rose's Le Cuckoo. I went this year. I... Oh God, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's a it's it's very straightforward straightforward French. The CDC because Daniel, I'm, I think split time between Paris and New York. The CDC is Justin Bogle, who is the youngest two Michelin star chef ever in the United States. He was 28 years old when he got a second Michelin star at the Guilt Club. I think it was called the Guilt Club or the Guilt. Or I think it was either the Guilt or the Guilt Club. Uh, and you know he was there the night that I was there um, expediting. And it was it was a very very good meal. Pro- I would probably give it a most definitely. I I give it a Michelin star. Yeah. And then the last element is there were no new three stars, which seems to be kind of the the course that New York seems to be going on with their guide. They've been losing places every couple of years. There'll be a three star knockdown to a two. Um, you know, I'm curious. Do you think New York could put up another three star place? Oh, 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 a couple of questions. Are there three-star restaurants in the wings that they're not recognizing? Yes. And do you think that, you know, what does it say about New York that they've been losing those stars? I don't think Danielle deserves three Michelin stars. I don't think Le Bernardin, which has three Michelin stars, which they didn't take away a third Michelin star from Le Bernardin, they don't deserve three. I don't think 11 Madison Park deserves three, which still has three. Um, Jean-Georges got a star taken away a couple years ago. That's a little bit... It's It's... Again, I thought I thought it was a solid two Michelin star restaurant when I went last a few years ago. Um, but there are restaurants there which I do think deserve three stars. I think Atera from Ronnie Emberg is doing a fantastic job. Um, Blanca is a little bit more. I do. I I would probably give it a third Michelin star. I, I some say the, the food is too simple, but then again, again, we get back to the fact that there are sushi restaurants that have. Three Michelin stars. And that's even more so. Uh, the other thing that's coming up is we have our San Francisco uh, Michelin guide is coming out pretty soon, right? At the end of the month, at the end of November. And for me, the thing that I'm kind of looking for as a East Bay born and raised guy, I'm curious to see if some of the new Oakland restaurants that have been popping up and getting a lot of press get recognized Um by Michelin. So places like Numbai, the Cambodian restaurant, or Diafa, which is the sit-down place from the Reams folk. Um, and I understand one of your favorite restaurants that maybe deserves an upgrade is in Oakland as well. Komi. Komi is owned by James Sabu, who also owns a Thai restaurant called Hakrafer. Too Well, yeah. And um, his, his elevated restaurant is called Komi, and I've been there a few times. The first time I went, it had one Michelin star. I told James after the meal, this is a two Michelin star um, meal. I think you'll get another star. And he did later that year. But I went again fairly recently, like in the last year, and I had a fantastic, another fantastic meal at Komi. And I thought, it has two Michelin stars now. I thought, okay, I think it deserves... And again, he improved even more this time around. And I thought, James, you're going to get a third Michelin star. He did not last year to my chagrin um i i i i think he could possibly get one this year i think it's more likely that another bay area restaurant will get a third michelin star and that's dominique Crenn's atelier Crenn. she the, the last year and a half i think she's really hit her stride with her with her team 
her former CDC was Rodney Wages. Um, he left, and there was some transition issues, and Kevin Finch took over. He's very young. He's going into the position. He's gotten better each and every time I've been there. I go usually go twice a year, and I went twice this year. And I thought both, both were three Michelin star meals. It'd be awesome to see a female chef in the United States get a Michelin, three Michelin stars. I think she's deserving. Um. So, is there anything else you're predicting or looking out for in San Francisco? Yes, I think there's some one Michelin star restaurants that I hope will emerge with the star this year. The most egregious omission is Kim Alter's Nightbird. She's one of the best chefs in the Bay Area, one of the best chefs in the United States. I thought it most definitely we get a Michelin star last year. It did not. I've gone two more times this year. Again, it's what it, there are two egregious omissions in the Michelin guides. Nightbird is one. Amos, Matt Orlando's Amos in Copenhagen is the other. I think they both deserve Michelin stars. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Rodney Wages, whom, whom I just talked about, former CDC at Italia Cran. I think he opened a restaurant called Avery this year. I think that deserves not only a Michelin star. I think the meal I had this year was two Michelin star level. Uh, Chris Blythorn, who also was chef de cuisine at Tele Cran along with Rodney, um, he he opened up Birdsong this year, which is one of the most beautiful restaurants in the United States. The design firm is Saint Architecture. They did a fantastic job. I went early on. The food was a little bit hit and miss. I've heard I've heard it's gotten a lot better. So if that's the case. That could get a Michelin star. So those are my predictions for the Bay Area. Let's talk briefly about our a new restaurant. This is something we do every week. We talk about a new restaurant that uh, we are looking forward to anywhere in America or even outside of America. And for me, I would say um, the place that kind of caught my eye this week is a... Uh, Eater Seattle reported that the chef at Adana in Capitol Hill, Shoto Nakajima, Nakajima, that he's opening a more casual place uh, that's going to specialize in Osaka-style fried skewers. So not a lot of information out there. It's going to be in Capitol Hill. Uh, They don't know the name yet. But it's curious to me that Seattle's Japanese scene seems to be uh, really expanding in interesting ways between them and uh, very much older restaurants like Maneki, which was opened in 1904. It was probably one of the oldest restaurants in the Pacific Northwest. And then more modern places like um, this upcoming place, as well as Kamoneki. Yeah. One of my favorite restaurants in, San, uh, in Seattle, uh, Chef Mitsuo, is, does a fantastic job with soba. It's one of the finest noodle places. And we talked about noodles earlier in the show. One of the finest noodle places in the Pacific Northwest. So go there. And my restaurant that i'm looking forward to also is called well it's, it's called shota but it's not it has nothing to do with shota nakajima shota is this restaurant that is opening or just has opened which is a japanese omakase in the financial district in san francisco uh, i think it's 125 dollars for dinner which in for omakase in most major cities is pretty reasonable uh, it looked promising tsukiji seafood so I don't know if I can go on the next um, Bay Area trip, but it looked, it looked really good. So I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, so the next thing we do is we talk about the best thing we ate last week. And why don't you start us off, Gary? I went to Los Angeles a few days ago and ate a bunch of Asian food. And what I really, really enjoyed was my ma pa tofu at 
Chengdu Taste in Alhambra. Tony Shu. I, I love Mopar Tofu. I, I also ate at Pine and Crane while I was in Los Angeles. And the one at Chengdu Taste is, was just more fiery, more interesting. It was, it was thick. With chili oil, it's just delicious, and I just loved it. And I wish that you know, I wish Change Your Taste would open a place in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> and I wish Panda Express would have Mapa Tofu in you know the, as a, as a potential selection option at Panda Express. Well, I think they have it at Panda. That's the upscale version of Panda Express. It's like the restaurant within a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the hidden it's one. Like, it's like the the restaurant in the middle of Disney. So for me, the best thing I ate was I had a lunch at Canard. Canard is the third restaurant from Gabriel Rucker here in Portland. And it's sort of like a casual all-day place. They go from 8 a.m. to midnight. You can get martinis and oysters in the morning if that's your thing. Um, And they're just having a lot of fun there. And the food is fun and weird. And they're they're taking a lot of risks. And it's paying off big time. They were our restaurant of the year for 2018. And... I, I haven't been for about a month or a month and a half, and the menu had a ton of new stuff on it. Uh, what I had was a wasabi fried chicken sandwich with egg salad on top, and it you know it was like it was hard to tell what was coming first, the chicken or the egg. And uh, <laughs> there was like fried macaroni and cheese, and then um, there was also a dish that's on at Le Pigeon right now that Gabriel told me is one of the top five dishes he ever made which is a foie gras fajitas. So next, is it time to talk about sports? Yeah, let's talk about sports. Okay, we end every show just chatting a little bit about sports. Uh, Gary suggested college basketball this week because it seemed like everyone in America was watching Duke versus Kentucky. I was supposed to, when I, we've talked about this before, when I travel, I tend to go to multiple dinners every night. But this time I decided, the game was supposed to start around 6.30. So I decided, oh, I'll go to Change Your Taste at 5, and I'll be done really quick. I'll just eat there and go straight back to the hotel and hang out in my hotel room and watch the game. It was number two, Kentucky, against number four, Duke. And Duke just waxed Kentucky <laughs> by 30 points. And they have the top three freshmen in the country, Cam Reddish, Zion Williamson, and R.J. Barrett. And Zion Williamson is the man. He's just so – he's like he's, – he's one of the famous athletes right now in the United States. Because he, he's a highlight reel, he's six foot seven, six foot eight, two hundred eighty-two pounds. There's only one NBA player who's more, who weighs more than Zion, and that's Boban, who's seven foot three inches. He's got forty-five inch vertical leap. That's uh, Zion has the forty-five inch vertical. Correct. Boban, not so much. I think he's point forty-five inch vertical leap. And Zion has handle. I mean, Michael was watching the highlights. Yeah, he didn't so watch there, there were two highlights that jumped out at me. I think everyone was tweeting these, but. One was, I mean, this is a guy, like Gary said, second second heaviest player in the league. But he started a play where he had the ball. So he's like Draymond Green plus in terms of size. But he has the ball. He's crossing the half court line. He starts his drive like 30 feet away from the basket. Uh, and he just blows by his defender. He's like two feet inside of the uh, free throw line. And he takes off and he dunked it from there like in traffic. That was amazing. I mean, just like raw power. And then the second highlight that jumped out was he had a block on uh, defense where he just basically swallowed this Kentucky player whole. He blocked the ball. He grabbed it under his arm while he was still in midair. And he immediately just charges down the floor. So he handles the ball as well. 
and he got uh, onto the other side of the court and he just threw in this beautiful bounce pass, I think to RJ Barrett who hit the layup. I mean, like that is just an absolute five tool player. And I'd be shocked if he didn't go number one in the NBA draft next year, barring injury. All right, everyone. Uh, this has been really fun. I'm Michael Russell. I'm Gary, the foodie. Thanks for listening in to another episode of Walk-Ins Welcome Pod. And good eats. Bye.